Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedekes. And now, get ready to think. Welcome to the Think Podcast with Joel Sedekes. I'm Joel Sedekes, and this is the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you, yes, that's right, you share, explain, and defend your faith. And yes, I just said those out of order. Why? Because I'm a little discombobulated. I just got kicked off by the program that we use to film these broadcasts, and I'm back now. So I'm back, but discombobulated. So I'm going to go ahead and say, if you can see and hear us, well, me right now, that's the royal us, go ahead and leave a comment. Say hello. And um, so here's what we're talking about today. On this episode of the Think Podcast, we are going to get into an issue where there is not universal Christian consensus. And I'm talking even among Orthodox, Bible-believing, gospel-believing Christians. There are some issues where it's like, you know what, if you're not, if you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. What we're talking about today is not one of those issues. We're talking about eschatology, which means the study of the end times or the last things. Now, one of the criticisms that I get sometimes in speaking with atheists is, well, if you want me to believe the Christian message, you've got to tell me which Christian message, because, you know, if you get a bunch of Christians together, eight or nine different Christians, they're all going to disagree. You know, there's an old joke that my Jewish, Messianic Jewish uh, uh, father-in-law tells, which is this. If you get two Jews in a room, you're going to get three different opinions. Uh, and if you get three Christians in a room, you'll end up with four denominations. And it, def- it does definitely feel that way sometimes. But uh, today we're going to be talking about an issue where although there is some uh, a lack of consensus worldwide among Christians, we are going to be talking about a historic position and its relation to a very contemporary event. We're going to be talking about Christians and the end times. And so my guest, I don't even really want to call him a guest at this point because he's been on so many times. I just cannot keep him away. This is um, my my partner in crime and pastor and good friend, Dan Osborne. So Dan, Pastor Dan, Reverend Dan, welcome, brother, to the Think Podcast. Welcome back. Uh, sometimes it feels like you never left at all. Hey, man, thanks for letting me uh, uh, stop by again. I love doing the show with you. Of course, of course. Um, so, Dan, why are we talking about eschatology? What is eschatology? And why did you want to call this episode why the coronavirus is a sign that we are living in the end times? Oh, yeah, I forgot. We did we did set that title. We did. Um, we set I changed it for this one, but that's what you wanted to call it. So so what is what are we talking about? Why does this matter? And why did you want to call it that? Um, I think... So a couple of reasons. One, it's kind of provocative, right? Uh, it, yes. uh, I mean, it's a pretty bold statement that the coronavirus is a sign uh, that the end is near, uh, which is just one of those phrases you hear Christians or, uh, you know, maybe someone, uh, you think of someone on the street corner holding a sign saying the end is near kind of thing. Um, and, and yet at the same time, Joel, I think you and I both agree on some of the things we're going to be talking about today. 
in terms of our eschatology. Uh, but I, I think it's important for us to recognize that there are signs uh, the New Testament gives us to say, look, the, the end, the, the fullness of the kingdom of God is near. It's, it's coming. Um, and the New Testament is uh, pointing forward to that. In fact, Jesus in the Gospels is, uh, in almost every Gospel account, will give the signs that we need to look for uh, for the, the end. Sometimes these are seen in the Olivet Discourse that shows up in uh, Mark uh, chapter uh, 13 and I think uh, Matthew 24. Um, and so there are signs of the end. Uh, and I, I would say this is one of them. Okay, and when you say this, you're referring to the coronavirus pandemic. Coronavirus, coronavirus, and uh, the quarantine. All right, so first of all, Dan, are we living in are we living in the end times? Give us the official Park Community Church. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm not going to ask you to speak for all of Park because uh, I'm sure there's going to need to be uh, white papers written, probably by you and Rafe. Um, <laughs> Who's watching? Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Um, are we living in the end times? I think yes. I, I know how I would answer that, but what do you say? Yes. Um, wh why and how? Uh, so I, I want to make a distinction between, you know, we think of end times normally in kind of pop culture Christianity. Uh, we have a very specific idea in mind when we think, uh, the end times. And what we're thinking of is a certain series or certain, certain, sequence of events uh, that once they take place will inaugurate Jesus' return, uh, his second coming, uh, and sometimes thrown into the mix is this idea of the rapture, uh, that Jesus will call out of the world uh, believers, Christians at the time, uh, and they will be uh, removed, separated from a coming judgment that will be experienced on the world. That is uh, what a lot of Christians, I think, have in mind when they talk about the end. Uh, and yet, I don't think that's the fullness of what the New Testament is talking about uh, when you think of the the last days, the the eschaton, that's the word that's used. Dan, I got I to gotta interject here because you are a graduate from Moody Bible Institute, correct? The Moody Bible Institute. The yeah. one and only, yes. Mm -hmm. And the last time I checked, and I will say it's been a while, is there not some building dedicated to Jerry Jenkins at Moody? Is there a building that's dedicated to him there? There is a building dedicated to Jerry Jenkins. Okay, fact, so I now I'm confused, years. Dan, because Jerry B. Jenkins is, I believe that's the same gentleman who is the co-author of the unassailably theologically accurate Left Behind series of the late 90s. Is that the same Jerry B. Jenkins, Dan? That's the same same Jerry B. Jenkins. Okay, so now you went to a school, and see, this is great. This is why I love the fact that I went to Trinity. I, I will never have this problem. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, the the um, the school you went to has a building dedicated to one of the authors of the Left Behind books, which, if I'm not mistaken, and believe me, I loved those books when I was in high school, uh, devoured them. Mm -hmm. But he wrote those books, which are really responsible for popularizing the view of the rapture and the end times that you just articulated, right? Isn't yep. wouldn't wouldn't you say books like the Left Behind yep. series and pr prior to that, the late Great Planet Earth and and books like mm -hmm. that? That's where we're getting a lot of this popular 
uh, yeah. form mm-hmm. of, of eschatology from. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So and how did you how did you come to break with the Moody Bible Institute in your eschatology and and uh, and maybe we should just talk about that real quick before we dive into why coronavirus is related to to your view mm-hmm. and my view. Yeah. Um, how did I how did I uh, break ties with Moody Bible Institute? Right. Uh, so first of all, want to give a shout out. I I love Moody the the institute uh, the seminary there. Uh, I have uh, a great respect for a lot of the um, the teaching staff, the professors there, uh, and uh, thoroughly enjoyed the eight years in total I, I studied there through undergrad and uh, seminary. Um, so what Moody is really famous for is the, they're not necessarily famous for this, they, they are kind of one of the uh, strongholds for a theological position known as dispensationalism. Uh, and dispensationalism in itself has uh, several variations, uh, but I think that the kind of the the popular distinction that dispensationalism offers is this uh, form of uh, pre-millennial, uh, pre-tribulation rapture. So it is the idea that in the uh, at at Christ's second coming, uh, he is going to call out uh, believers. He's going to call the church that exists at the time, uh, call them out of the world to to where I don't know where that they will be caught up in the sky comes from uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. It's where a lot of the, that idea is uh, taken from. And uh, while the church is taken away, that's when the world will experience judgment, the tribulation, which uh, they typically say is about seven years. Some of the years are symbolic. Some of the years are not, are, are literal seven years. Uh, and that is tied to the 70 weeks talked about in the book of Daniel. Uh, and so, you know, what, what I'd say in general, one, I, I don't think dispensationalism is a wacky theory that has absolutely no biblical basis for it uh, whatsoever. I, I don't think that's true. And I think there are, are you know, genuine Christians who, uh, you know, love the word, love the scriptures, love the gospel, uh, who, who subscribe to the dispensational position. Um, in fact, one of the reasons why I think Jerry Jenkins' book is... Uh, I actually think it's a really well done book because it appeals to the Christian imagination. It it lets people see and experience uh, the scriptures in maybe a way that they had never uh, fully been able to uh, imagine them before. And so in that sense, it's, it's powerful writing that he did, even if it's on a popular level, it's it's very powerful writing. Um, My journey away from dispensationalism took a long time uh, because Joel, you and I would both agree that, uh, eschatology is actually a really important part of your theology. John MacArthur had, has said uh, something I think that's really helpful here um, for uh, for people who have a reformed position of God's sovereignty, that he, he is sovereign over uh, creation, over the universe. Uh, we, we can't say he is sovereign over creation and then has left uh, eschatology up to chance, right? That- <laughs> right. He's got a uh, he's got a pattern. The, the scriptures, you know, we believe God does have a very defined eschatology, even if we don't fully understand all of what it is. So it, it is an important piece that we shouldn't just think of as you know uh, second tier, not not important, uh, or you know, some people call it um, 
you know, they have a, like a, a a view that, well, everything will just kind of pan out in, in the end. And, and so we don't need to spend time thinking about it. Uh, I don't think that's true. And I, I think you would agree with that statement that eschatology really is an important piece. And oh, so coming sure. away coming away from Moody, uh, I felt like my uh, theology construct was a bit like of a like a Jenga tower. Hmm. And I had been, uh, you know, once I stepped away from this pool of dispensationalism and started reading a bit more broadly on, uh, you know, what some of the reformers had talked about with eschatology um, and then other other theologians that I deeply respected, you know, guys like R.C. Sproul has written some really helpful things on eschatology. Uh, John MacArthur himself has written very helpful, concrete mm-hmm. things on ex- eschatology. Uh, and so deepening this world of um, just uh, my own personal study, I felt like I had freedom to start looking into other schemes of the okay. end times. It took it took about three years for me to move from dispensationalism to the current position I have right now. And part of that was because we use that Jenga tower analogy. I felt like I was pulling a Jenga piece out. Yeah. Uh, the problem is I wasn't quite sure which piece I was pulling. Uh-huh. So I didn't know if this was going to be, be the piece that like everything else crumbled on or if it was a, you know, if it was a, you know, middle piece where it, that was, you know, surrounded by the rest of the stable tower, if that makes any sense. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. so okay. yeah, go ahead. No, 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 please continue. Uh, really what uh, I think was the nail in the coffin for me was starting to read more people like uh, N.T. Wright. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't openly recommend N.T. Wright for anybody. He's, there's a particular field that he's in uh, that, that I've started to think in uh, a whole lot more about with this second I'm, temple Judaism. Yeah, I'm still idea. praying for you w- with your N.T. Wright <laughs> addiction. But, you know, that, hey, yeah. man, no yeah. one's perfect. It's all good. Yeah. So let, let's just set aside the justification question sure. for a second. I think just, he does a really yeah. good job of getting us back to what do what what was your average Jewish person thinking mm-hmm. uh, at the time of Jesus? This is why people like Michael Heiser as well, because even if you don't agree with everything that he says, he's he's really trying to get people back to that first century mindset. Yeah, I don't know if yeah. you're familiar with Michael Heiser at all, mm-hmm. but yeah, mm-hmm. similar similar goal, maybe different level, probably certainly different levels of scholarship, uh, but nevertheless, yeah, yeah, so. So getting back to uh, Second Temple era, uh, you know, when when Jesus w- was around and starting to see some more of the expectations uh, that your average Jewish person would have had about uh, the the Messiah, the, the kingdom of God, uh, namely being um, not as not nearly as complex as, as what we would try and uh, we would try and make it. Um, but really being this hope that there would be that, that God was going to begin to put the world back the way that it was supposed to be. Right. And he was mm-hmm. going to do that through his Messiah. Now, yes. how that was going to happen. I think there's, there's a lot of unknown at that point in time, in second temple Judaism, but that was kind mm-hmm. of the uh, part of the expectation. The second thing that I started to see uh, for me is I, I felt like a lot of my training um, at Moody, and this this isn't a knock against Moody or any of the professors, but how what I walked away doing a lot was building my eschatology mainly on uh, off of systematic theology. 
mm-hmm. instead of biblical theology. And the reason that can get tricky is because systematic theology views the scriptures like a puzzle and you try and put all of the pieces together, which can be legitimate, but you have to understand that just because you know John may be talking about a trumpet and Paul may be talking about a trumpet doesn't mean they're talking about the same exact moment. Right. Uh, they may have different ideas uh, in place that they're talking about, and we don't need to necessarily try and jam some of those puzzle pieces together in order to create a whole a whole picture. Yes, if that makes sense. So that's mm-hmm. that's you know obviously Revelation talks about the last trumpets. Uh, Paul will talk about the sound of a trump. Uh, and I think two places in in Thessalonians and in First Corinthians fifteen. It does not therefore mean that they are talking about the same exact event. There may yes. be other things that they're doing. So what I wanted to start doing is in my study of scripture is let Paul speak for Paul without rushing uh, immediately to Revelation 7 and trying to mix it or match it up there. Does that make any sense? Yeah. No, I think I think taking each author on his own terms, um, studying, you know, the, the first place to go to understand John, for example, who wrote the book of Revelation mm-hmm would be other writings by John. Yeah. What what yeah. else has John said about yeah. this topic? And then, yeah. you know, from there, we could look at right. the allusions that he's right. making, you know, to Ezekiel, to Daniel, to Isaiah. Yeah. And yeah. and certainly we, we could also, certainly we could also broaden our search out to the other New Testament epistles. Yeah. Uh, you know, some of, some of the um, seemingly disconnected passages uh, in Psalms things like that. Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 talk about the Mm -hmm. reign of the Messiah, things like that. Mm -hmm. So, but you definitely want to take each book on its own, Mm -hmm. each author uh, as an author in his own right, in his own Mm -hmm. standing. And then, and then, yeah, like, like a good biblical theologian to trace these ideas through scripture and okay. So maybe it's not the same trumpet, but what does a trumpet signify? Uh, where else have we seen this theme in scripture and how has yes. it progressed yeah. such that by the time John starts yeah. talking about it in Revelation, now we've got the, uh, now we've got sort of an advanced take on it. So whereas yeah. Ezekiel might be talking about a temple and uh, water flowing out of the holy place in the temple, by the time we get to Revelation, now there's a river flowing out of the throne of God. Hmm, could that be connected at all? Is this a, is this a, a similar theme that John is developing Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that doesn't negate in any way the fact that John saw an actual vision. We're not saying yeah. that John made this up out of whole cloth, but scripture is progressive in what it reveals. Mm-hmm. I think Hebrews 11 talks mm-hmm. a lot about that. Just sort of the, the overall flow. I mean, Jesus himself talks about that um, yeah. Qu- yeah. quite a bit, how the, the, the Old yeah. Testament points towards him. And he's the fuller revelation of that. Hebrews one, Hebrews chapter 1 talks about that. Yeah. Um, so, so Dan... The just to be clear, the the eschatology I know that you and I both subscribe to, and I don't mm-hmm. know that we've ever fully fleshed out where all the areas of overlap and disagreement might be, but it is known as amillennialism. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So the idea of amillennialism, the big idea, it really all comes down to how you interpret Revelation chapter twenty verses one through six, and in this passage, we have the what's known as the millennial reign of Christ. And really what your what school of thought in terms of your eschatology that you subscribe to is really going to hinge on how you interpret this key passage. And 
uh, Dan, you did you you I think spoke very well of dispensationalism. I like how you said this isn't just some crazy theory. I think that there are some versions of dispensationalism that do border on the fringe. Uh, that that you know, um, every, yeah. where every news headline is you know oh, is, sure. is sure. something from the Book of Revelation. Um, you know, I, I think I, I I think that the um, the sort of the mainstream view, the mainstream views of dispensationalism, especially more progressive dispensationalism, would mm-hmm. would very much uh, not get into that wild speculation. Right. Um, and I'm going to put a question from Rafe up here, so we can address it in just a minute. And I know where he's going with this, which I think so is so. Do great. I? Um, but the there are some benefits to the amillennialist view which basically says this whereas the premillennials would say jesus comes back pre prior to a literal thousand year reign and the postmillennialists who would be more like a i mean the, the most the most prominent person putting this forward on a popular level today would be like doug wilson if you're familiar with him um or, uh, or, or you know, there are certainly some other popularizers, and certainly many scholars who would put mm-hmm. put that view forward. But basically, says this view says that Jesus will return after the gospel does its work and transforms the world. Then Jesus will return at the end of either a literal or non-literal thousand-year golden age. Whereas amillennialism is really badly named. Um, it is. Uh, it that's is. why, like, I think it's Sam Storms. Who calls it realized millennialism? But you know, good luck trying to get that to catch on. Uh, but <laughs> basically, what it says is there is no literal thousand-year reign of Christ. the 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 thousand-year reign is a symbol for the time between the first and second coming of Christ. It is Christ reigning both in heaven, as Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through twenty says. We're Jesus has all authority and in heaven and on earth, and it's Christ reigning here on earth now through mm-hmm. his church, in his church, mm-hmm. in our hearts. And that's not to privatize it because Christians, if we understand what our mission is, we are to be taking dominion of this world, not through military conquest, but through the fulfillment of the Great Commission, yeah, uh, through discipleship. Yeah. and. And there are many advantages to this view. The fact that scripture talks about one last day, not, um, uh, and one return of Christ, as opposed to a return mm-hmm. of Christ before the millennium or before the tribulation and then after the tribulation and then at the end of, of, uh, of a particular, uh, I'm, 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 I'm getting ahead of myself here. I'm tripping over my own feet, Dan. But as you know, <laughs> dispensationalism actually has at least two second comings of Christ. There's the first yes. secret. Uh, rapture, and then there's there's another coming where he would reign, and then sort of a culmination at the end of a thousand years. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Bible talks about one day of the Lord, one uh, one resurrection, except in chapter twenty of Revelation, verse twenty five, where it does talk about a first resurrection, but that first resurrection is most likely, and I don't know if you'd agree with this, but I believe it's most likely spiritual in nature, describing those who avoid the spiritual second death at the moment of justification. So you and I, when we trusted in Christ, according to Ephesians chapter two, we were brought from death to life, although we were dead in our sins and trespasses, we were raised spiritually speaking, which is not to say non-literally, because Mm -hmm. we literally were raised from spiritual death. 
So it's not, we don't, we don't brush aside the first resurrection. We just try to interpret it as, as scripture uh, would, would seem to be teaching it. Yeah. Um, whereas then the second resurrection will be the resurrection at the end of the age of both mm -hmm. the righteous and the unrighteous, yeah. which Daniel talks about. And mm -hmm. um, so that, that would, I think, be one advantage of amillennialism where it, it's simpler and I believe that it's more, it's more true to the thrust of yeah. scripture, which talks about uh, one literal resurrection, one literal day of the Lord. Yeah. And after Christ returns, there is no second chance for people to repent. It's mm -hmm. your, your eternal destiny is set at that point. Uh, we could also talk about the binding of Satan and things like that, but I've, I've been yeah. going on for a while here. I just, do you have any, uh, any thoughts on that before we get to Rafe's question? No, I think that's, I think that's, um, uh, those, those are some, here's the thing, every system. And when I mean, when I say system, I mean, every view of eschatology mm -hmm. uh, of the big ones, post-millennialism, pre-millennialism and amillennialism, uh, dispensationalism obviously is looped into uh, pre, uh, a form of premillennialism. Yeah. Uh, all of them have weak points. All of them uh, are, sure. are imperfect to, to a degree. Uh, and you're going to, you're going to hit places where, you know, for example, when we get to, when we talk about amillennialism, the place that people will hit, particularly folks from a dispensational viewpoint or a premillennial viewpoint will say, well, why, why are you spiritualizing uh, the millennium? Or right. uh, it says a thousand years. Why not? Why would you think it's anything other than a literal thousand years? There's a weak point there. Right. Um, but th those, those points are in all of, all of the the schemes uh so I, I think there's one one piece um to be reminded of is this is a place where you know we, we exercise a whole lot of humility um mm -hmm. if and this is a yeah like the, we, we could be wrong and yes, that's okay we, we couldn't be wrong about the existence of god the truth of the gospel this is definitely an area yeah. where we right. could be wrong right there's there's one theologian who said um when you when you read the new testament and it's it's talking about eschatology uh it, it's almost like it's talk it, it's like signs that are pointing into a fog and so you may be able to discern the general directions but when we start trying to find all of the details and you know mapping out everything that's going to happen i think we're trying to answer questions that the scriptures are just not giving answers to uh it's really pointing in more of a a, a general direction amillennialism happens to be the direction i I understand the scriptures to be pointing. Yeah, and to be clear too, I I don't hear you saying that all the eschatolog eschatological schemes have an equal number of weak points, or no, even no, if no, they no. do, they're they're not all equally strong. Right. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. I I would agree with that. Okay. So it's not so like you can pick one. It's not. I don't think they're all. Um, you know, in my mind, they're not all uh, equal. I think you have to, you have to pay. They can't all be right, right? Correct. That's right. That's right. We're not uh, we're not subjectivists um, right. when it comes to truth, and and of course, um, when scripture is unclear, we come up with, or, or let me say this: when we when we are unclear about scripture, yeah, uh, that doesn't mean that the meaning of scripture is ambiguous. It just means that right. we don't fully understand it correctly. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or maybe we do, and we just under—we just have a, a lesser degree of certainty. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, for example, I think I'm right 
about amillennialism. Um, but I could I could be absolutely right. I I could be more correct than I am certain, if that makes sense. My sure. understanding of of an interpretation of the millennium and eschatology could be 100% correct. I don't personally feel as though I've reached that level of cognitive rest where I can sit back and go, yeah, I've got this no more need to study or anything yeah, like that. Yeah. You know, and and the vast probability is I've probably got some pretty serious blind spots somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. um, so Rafe is asking, would you consider yourself an optimistic amillennialist? Hey, Rafe, are you still watching? If you're still watching, you you want to hop on here? Rafe, if you want to hop on, leave a comment and maybe we can maybe we can bring him in because we need to talk about this. What does it mean to be an optimistic amillennialist? Rafe, if you're still watching, leave a leave a comment and we'll we'll bring you in. I'll send you a link. In fact, I'm gonna send him a link to, right now. Is it fair for us to uh, have that conversation? Because the other side is uh, pessimistic post-millennial. Um and <laughs> I think uh, <laughs> um, I think we we might put him in that in that category. Oh, he's watching. All right, great. Have him jump. All on. right, I'm gonna. Dan, are you okay with this? I'm sorry to put you on the spot here, Dan. Are you okay yeah, bringing yeah. bringing mm -hmm. Rafe in here? Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna. Rafe, I'm sending you the link now. You can you can check that out, uh, and then um, go ahead and join us, and I'll add you to the stream. Uh, Dan. Hold on. Have you ever seen one of those like uh, failed proposals, you know, where someone proposes in public and the person says no? Yeah, yeah, I've seen those. Yeah, sure. That's what this could be like. Like if he doesn't get on, we know he's watching. And if right. he doesn't get on, we know he's rejected. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, but then we could just say, then we could, um, we could title this. You want a provocative title? Pastor refuses to answer question about the Bible or something. <laughs> Watch South Loop, South Loop Pastor. South Loop Pastor, that's good. That's good. Or uh uh Joel and Dan absolutely destroy Rafe with facts and logic. Oh so, nah. so Rafe, that's what's that's what's um <laughs> that's what's coming to you, buddy. Uh so so an optimistic amillennialist yeah. is would be someone. See, here's the thing about amillennialism. First of all, it, it it can tend to be much like premillennialism. It can tend to be pessimistic. Mm -hmm. um, okay, Rafe, Rafe is joining. Rafe, if you're if you're ready to go, just give me a little wave. They can't see you, but okay, good. All right, I'm gonna bring Rafe in here. Ah, millennials. All right, Rafe, could you could you mute your Facebook feed there? How's that better? Yeah, that's good. Perfect. I always have audio issues. That's the nature of uh, the nature of how my computer works. All right, so now look at this. This is. Uh, I wasn't going to let you two sit over there and talk eschatology without <laughs> jumping on this with you. Come on, this is like uh, this is like my dream moment right now. I get to talk end of times with you two. This is good. This is this is good, and um, this is nice too because now there's three of us on the screen. If you're just listening to the podcast, you're missing out because now we can do like one of those Brady Bunch moments. We could do like a screenshot where it's like I'm looking over at Dan, you know, yep. looking down, you know. Um, so. So, Rafe, when you say, first of all, welcome to the Think Podcast, Rafe. Welcome back. <laughs> Thanks. Good. Glad to be here. Glad to compare libraries with you, Dan. Uh, are you, does this mean you're less you're less uh, smart because you don't have a library of books behind you right now? Oh, Kindle. I forgot. 
Dan, well, you should have seen his last theology in the round video. I think it was where he had it in his uh, church office, and it was. It's that's a pretty impressive office. I know because I used to have that office before Dan stole my job. But um, I. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, for anyone watching, Can you clarify that. Can you yes, yes. That? Yes, clarify. I was the. I was the interim pastor at Park Community Church Forest Glen. When my term came to an end, Dan took over. Dan is Dan is has been the pastor for almost two years now, uh, but that doesn't it doesn't mean I can't just every now and then just get out the old needle and just give him a poke. Um, but um, but Dan's my pastor now, so he can technically excommunicate me. I think I think that's how it works. So I have to be careful. Oh my um, goodness. The, the the point is this: you are both. Uh, brilliant scholars, much more so than me. Um, go ahead, say it's not true. No, Joel, you're so. No, you're great. You're great. <laughs> you were accurate. All right. Um, uh, moving on. Uh, Rafe, what is what is an optimistic amillennialist, and and why are most amillennialists negative? And 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 we have to eventually bring this around to talking talking about coronavirus. So, Rafe, what did you mean by that question? All right. So first of all, the, to define the term optimistic amillennialist, uh, that is a uh, I, I don't know if that's an official term or that's just one that you and I, Joel, like to use when we're chatting about these things. Um, <clears throat> but the idea is, is that you guys have been having this conversation of these different schemas that you look at end times and you've got premillennialism, which sees end times as and the whole book of Revelation as something that's going to happen in the future. It's, it's, it's in the future from where we are right now. <clears throat> and then amillennialism has this view where the millennium that's described as this thousand year reign, it's actually something we're living in right now. And like right now, Jesus is king right now. He is ruling and reigning right now. That's not talking about some future kingdom that he's gonna have on earth later on. He is ruling right now as king. Uh, he has established his kingdom right now and he has sent his spirit to live in his saints right now. And so amillennialism has kind of a, as you said, a realized uh, view of the millennium. We're living in it right now. In terms of being optimistic, the, if you compare amillennialism and end times and what we're thinking, an optimistic view of amillennialism believes kind of what the postmillennialist believes. It, they believe that, yes, we're living in the millennium right now. Yes, the church is rolling forward. I mean, if you, just objectively, if you look at history, the church continues to grow. The church continues to bring in more people and, and see culture change. Yes, you know, it's kind of like the stock market. It has ups and downs moments and, you know, it has moments where you're being persecuted. But the church continues to, to rise and, and, and grow. And an optimistic amillennialist is a way of saying that while not maybe being a full post-millennial, saying we believe that Christianity is literally going to take over every nation uh, every person, every segment of society will ultimately be Christianized because first Corinthians says the very first Corinthians 15 says the very last enemy to be defeated will be death. Right? So the post millennia says everything is going to be Christianized. To be, be fair, not, not to be fair, not all post millennials right. say, you know, some of them put the threshold at, at different points, you know, oh, right, it'll right, be 51%. Right. It'll be, you know, two thirds. And, and I think, the ones that I've heard will sort of leave that measurement ambiguous. Right. Sort of, you know, it's sort of, you know, the, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth just as the waters cover the sea. So right. 
you know, it, it'll be broad, it'll be vast, it'll be universal, but maybe not totally, right. you know, uh, a one-to-one -one ratio for human population and Christian. Yeah. So I was describing maybe an extreme view of post-millennialism, but you get the point, right? Like everything's going to get Christianized and the very last thing that happens after Christianity spreads and takes over everything. And then Jesus comes back and basically just assumes his physical posture as the physical king. Well, an optimistic amillennial is kind of like, as Dan said, a pessimistic post-millennial. There's kind of this line where as a millennial who believes that we're living in the thousand years, believes that, that Jesus is reigning as king, and also believes that we're to live on mission and that Christianity will ultimately be victorious. Well, it's kind of where do you draw that line of when does Jesus actually come back and establish his physical kingship in person? When does he return? So an optimistic amillennial is just very hopeful of what the Christian mission will do. We really believe it's going to work. It's going to take over society that it actually physically, functionally works in society. That when nations and cities build their moral infrastructure on the, on the kingdom principles, uh, that it's good. And that ultimately it, it wins. I have to share a moment with you guys. The other day, so I'm right now preparing for a debate that I have coming up with an atheist. Uh, named Kenneth Leonard. And to to prepare, I want to make sure that I'm interacting with his thoughts so I can represent him well and, and I know what sort of points he's going to raise and bring up. And I was watching this video. It was an atheist roundtable that he did uh, with a, a number of other atheists. And uh, I mean, you guys can imagine me watching a, a roundtable of, of atheists. There's six atheists and uh, I'm watching this. And of course, it, I wasn't watching it live, so I couldn't actually interact with anybody. So I'm sitting there going, mm. I'm like that meme of the guy with the vein popping out of his head. He's just sitting there just, mm, you know, like that, wanting to interact. But one of the, so the, the host of this roundtable, his name is Brandon. He goes by the name of Ethan Michael on, on Facebook. Great dude. He and I are actually really developing a, a friendship. He's a really cool guy. One of the things that he said, because he was responding to a Christian in the comments who was talking about how things are getting worse and the end is nigh. And, and it was very clearly sort of a dispensational kind of question. But the host, the host, Brandon, actually made this point. He said, you know what? I actually disagree. I think things are getting better. I look out at the world and I see Things are getting better. And I'm I'm watching this, and it was this moment where I wanted to shout to him, Brandon, I agree. I agree. And so the the this the dispensationalist mindset has so permeated the Western evangelical church, at least in the United States. And and dispensationalism has such a pessimistic view. We're gonna eventually be overtaken by the Antichrist. He's going to come. He's going to persecute us all, put us in jail, for, you know, force us to either die or have the mark of the beast. And eventually Satan's going to win. And the only hope that we have, we're going to be raptured. And it's, a, it's this view that we're going to have to escape it. We're never going to have victory in any real sense here and now. And so we might as well, the, the implication of that is, yeah, do your evangelism. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that they're saying this, but I'm saying a natural result of, of that line of thinking is, well, let's just make the quarantine permanent and just stay inside and wait for the rapture. Um, and it's a very pessimistic view. When you, In reality, though, when you actually track the state of humanity over the last several decades and, and centuries, and you compare the standard of living, not just in the West, mm. but worldwide, poverty is at a 
a, a level that is historically low going back to all of history that we have recorded. Um, I remember it being said one time, you can go right now to a buffet restaurant and have before you an array of foods of such exquisite and an exotic nature that the kings of the past would be jealous of you. Now, that's a, that's a small example, okay? But the technology we enjoy, the, the, the prosperity we enjoy, the medicine. And here's why I say, here's why this ties into eschatology is because the advancements that we've made in commerce, in science, in medicine, in education, they come from Christians. From Christian worldview. From the Christian worldview being played out in Always. real time. Sl chattel slavery being ended. That happened in Christian civilization. Mm -hmm. The scientific revolution happened in Christian civilization and, and hospitals and universities. And this wasn't coincidence. People like to attribute this to the enlightenment. I know I'm going on a rant here, guys, but uh, Steve Coble would call it a run. Uh, cue up the organ. But the the these advancements, they come from the Christian worldview and from Christians. And despite the fact that we are the most persecuted group in the in the world today we are still working and transforming and rafe i'm with you i'm very optimistic and i believe that god's word will not return to him void i don't think god's given us a political message but i do think that as christians infiltrate every area of society like yeast working its way through a lump of dough to use the biblical example you are going to see transformation and i do think that will continue to happen until until the end and then i'm a little more like right up till the end and then i'm a little more shaky on what happens because i do see i do see things possibly turning uh a little bit towards the end and i'm happy to talk about why but first i want to give you guys the thought to or the opportunity to respond to my rant what do you what are your thoughts what one thing that i think is helpful to, to keep in mind is that when we view eschatology and talk about it uh we're, we're doing so from a very particular moment in history uh and depending on what moment <clears throat> in history you are living in that's going to color the way that you're reading the scriptures it's going to inform the uh the way you're viewing the you know the way you're looking into the the fog of the end as the scriptures talk about them and so there's part of the reason why post-millennialism uh is um or amillennialism is talked about in a, a, as pessimistic right now uh, is because historically you know you, you get to the point of the first and second world wars where post-millennium post-millennialism is the dominant uh, view uh, at least in the west about the millennium that comes to a crashing halt where people are confronted with like this horrific these two horrific events, millions and millions of people die. Uh, and so they're trying to re reframe, um, you know, how do we make sense of this? Now, if you're living in that moment, you, you would understand why that would shake you. If you view the historical lens out, you may still see the, the upward progress uh, that uh, I think the Christian worldview is having globally. Um, but the way that I was always taught about amillennialism is that it takes it, it comes kind of after that uh, first world war, second world war era, where it's like, okay, things are obviously not getting better. So um, let's just do away with this idea of the millennium altogether. Uh, and I think that caricature has lingered, which is not true. This, this is not how that the 
that scheme has developed. I okay, think good. you guys was, might know better than me. Yeah, no, I was going to uh, say that. That amillennialism is probably, I, I think, older than premillennialism or postmillennialism. Rafe, do you know about that? Every, every camp likes to claim they're the oldest one. <laughs> well, ours goes back to Jesus. Yeah, ours goes back to Jesus. You know, I think, Joel, to comment on what you were saying, I think the um, it, it's it's very interesting it, to, to study the uh, the what I would call blessings that Christianity has brought to the world through uh, science, through education, through law, through nation formation. Um, it, it's it's remarkable. And where you see Christianity flourish, it's not a one-to-one ratio uh, because there are great stains upon the mark of Christianity, particularly in our own country, right? You look at the founding of this country of America, while there's a lot of back and forth of where they, uh, you know, what were their exact religious beliefs, the Puritans, you know, when they came and they established, they, they had a vision to establish a Christian nation. And there's a great stain at the, allowing uh, unjust slavery for as long as it happened. Massive stains that have come where Christianity has gone as well. Um, on the whole, on the whole, uh, where you see Christianity freely being lived out, uh, you see all society benefiting as a result. And on the whole, where you see, if I could use a political term, Marxist theology and philosophy guiding nations, um, the idea, and frankly, Marxism, I know it's a political term, but you know, if you read Karl Marx, it was a manifestation of atheism. It was, here's, here's how a godless society can be structured, and here's how the state can be the savior, and it's pretty wicked when you read a lot of his original writings. When you see that actually played out in nations, you see the opposite of growth. You see the opposite of human flourishing. You see a lot of pain. You see a lot of death. You see a lot of people being restrained um, and just horrors. Uh, and it's today. It's not just from decades ago. It's today. That's the world we're living in today. And so, yes, I would affirm everything you're saying. And it's one of the reasons why uh, I'm a optimistic a millennial who is verging on for now. For now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's true. This is what happens when Christianity is allowed to flourish. Mm-hmm. Well, when yeah. the kingdom comes to bear, it expands. Like that, that's why we're optimistic, uh, millennials, because we believe the kingdom of God is uh, expanding and moving now. Like yes. it, it's happening. Yes, and that that has a. It would be absurd to think that that could not have a, a positive impact on society. Right, and think about the metaphors that Jesus used to describe the advancement of his kingdom. He talked about yeast working its way through a lump of dough. He talked about a mustard seed, which is the smallest of the garden seeds, but then grows. And I I think it's hilarious when people object to Jesus's metaphor here because Jesus says, well, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of, you know, smallest of your seeds. And people go, it's not the smallest seed. Okay, we're talking about the seeds you find in the garden. At that time, it's he's using hyperbole. He's not it's not a scientific botany textbook. So, you know, go with it here. And then they go, and then Jesus says, well, and it's a, it grows into like the biggest of trees. And people go, oh, it doesn't grow into the biggest. Of, there's a sequoia. There's a redwood. Okay. It's Jesus is, is describing a scenario in which a tiny seed starts out very obscurely. You plant it in the ground. You immediately forget where you planted it. It's like a little speck, like, the, like a grain of sand. And it grows to be something that is supernaturally Mm-hmm. obscenely large and so mm-hmm. jesus is he's describing a spiritual reality here 
And he's talking about a mustard plant growing into a tree that's big enough for birds to come and nest in. Uh, And that is a view of the kingdom of God that motivates me, man, because I look at that and you guys know, uh, I mean, you're passionate about evangelism. I'm passionate about evangelism. And I love the idea that evangelism and discipleship work and, and it's built into the very movement that Jesus started at Pentecost when he, when he sent the Holy Spirit. It's built into the movement that what starts out small and obscure will grow through multiplication and will grow exponentially as one disciple disciples two more disciples who disciple four more disciples who disciple 16 more disciples. And it's built into the very nature of how the church spreads and the Holy Spirit is given to each new believer. How could we not take over? I'm sorry to say it in such militaristic (laughs) terms. How could we not win? We have a message that is actually true. It's spiritually powerful. It's the power of God Mm -hmm. unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, Romans 16, Romans 1, 16 and 17. Mm -hmm. God is actually behind it. Unless we are going to say, well, God is is just not going to bless the very thing that he said he would bless. How are we not going to win? And that motivates me to want to get out and share the gospel as often as I can and start making disciples and to bring as many believers with me as I possibly can. Because biblically speaking, if we're not winning, we're doing something wrong. It's not on God. It's, it's, it's our own slackericity. It's not the ineffect, ineffectiveness of, of the gospel. And yes, I said slackericity. Slackericity. I'm with you, Joel. I, and I think the, um, you know, I like to think, go, go back to Jesus saying that statement. It's a mustard seed and it's going to grow to the biggest tree, right? And you just imagine the disciples after Jesus has ascended and the church is beginning to grow. Like, do you think they could have possibly imagined today? Like, imagine the world we live in today and how far Christianity has spread to literally almost. I mean, there are nations still that have not gotten the gospel, but on the whole, uh, Christianity has spread pretty far and wide. There's work to do, but it's spread pretty do you think they ever had a vision like that? And if they could see it, if they had a quick glimpse back in the first century, they'd be like, oh, that's what Jesus meant. In other words, where we are right now, we are living in fulfilled. Jesus is the, the greatest prophet. When you look at what he said was going to happen, down to a T, it's all worked out the way he said it was going to happen. Uh, obviously, much more than a prophet, so don't misquote me. This, Joel, I think this will help get us back to part of the original conversation. Um, I, I also think, Rafe, they'd be incredibly surprised that uh, Christ had not fully returned yet and that we were not living in the, the kingdom. Yeah. Well, we're living in the, in a full inaugurated kingdom. So two questions related to that. Th- Dan, thank you for getting us back on track here. So question one. is Well, three questions. Is Satan bound currently such that he cannot deceive the nations that's question one question two if satan is bound will he be released at the end of the age such that he then can deceive the nations again and question three dan why did you say the coronavirus is a sign that we are in the end times (laughs) because i don't think we've gotten a, a a fully explicit answer on that so 
feel free to weigh in on on any one of those questions. Go ahead, Rafe. Oh, I was gonna say it's all you. <laughs> I'm gonna start. <laughs> yes, Satan is bound. Yes. Satan is bound now currently with respect to his ability to deceive the nations, which is why, which is why, see, Jesus said, you can't steal what belongs, you can't steal the property of a strong man until you first bind the strong man. This is one of my favorite, favorite images that Jesus used. You have to bind the strong man first, and then you can go into his house and plunder what belongs to him. And what Jesus so then you fast forward to Revelation and you find that Satan, the strong man, metaphorically speaking, has been bound with a chain for a thousand years such that he cannot deceive the nations anymore. Right. Okay. So then you've got um, uh, in Revelation 20 where it says the, the, the saints will come to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. It sounds like it's the same thousand years that Christ is bound for. And or the, the, that Satan is bound for, and then, then you have to ask yourself: All right, so if Satan's bound, how is Jesus stealing from him? Well, how about if you go back and you look at the entire history of humanity, and you ask yourself: Who made up the people of God? It was a small people group, a couple million people at a time, living in the Middle East, while the vast population of Earth worshipped rivers and imaginary gods and volcanoes and suddenly something switches where all those gentile pagan heathen idolaters are suddenly now all worshiping the god of israel it's mm. almost as if whatever was keeping them in the dark whoever was deceiving them was bound up with a chain with his with respect to his ability to deceive them thrown into a bottomless pit with respect to his ability to deceive them and they were suddenly open and available to hear the good news and to become God's people. Your thoughts? <clears throat> I completely agree with you, Joel. That's how, that's exactly how I would say it. You know, for the Christian, Satan. You know, we we believe what the scriptures say that we were once underneath underneath the dominion of darkness, uh, but we've been set free and put into an entire new kingdom, an entire new dominion. And mm -hmm. once those shackles have been set free, once Jesus Christ gets a hold of a life. He literally robs him from Satan's hands, puts him into a new kingdom. There's uh, Satan cannot rebind that person. Satan cannot come in and snatch him back. He's he's been bound. Satan's Satan's ability to do that has been bound. And so, yes, a literal literal putting that into literal terms. Yes, Satan Satan's ability to harm you or me is severely limited. He cannot rebind us. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm fully agreeing with you. And then how that plays out at the end times, uh, when uh, what that looks like for him to be released, uh, that will be very yeah. interesting. Dan, it's yeah, I think uh, yeah, I would I agree, agree with a lot of what you guys have talked about. Um, one of the problems with the objection that people have to this when they say like, how, how could you say that Satan is bound? Like, look around, look around you. Um, well. I mean, that's, it's kind of built on an art, an assumption of what you think the world would look like if he was unbound. Right. Um, and we can't, we're, we're not seeing that right now. You know, for example, you know, I was thinking a lot about this with, um, uh, with, with the coronavirus and, you know, we canceled the marriage retreat, things like that. There's really no way for us to say that we actually prevented a disaster from happening at Park Community Church because we canceled the marriage retreat. Right. We don't know what the effect would have been 
um, if we had gone on with it and, you know, still had a conference because we bound it that because we canceled it, that prevented us from seeing the fullness of what could have happened in the same way. If you say Satan is bound now, uh, what we're seeing now is just like the, the residual effects of what he's able to do. Uh, it's hard to say that you could, um, you know, it's hard to compare what the world would have looked like if he were completely unbound. So all that to say is it's a, that, that objection, which you hear a lot is really built from silence. You can't, you can't really go anywhere with it. The second thing I'd add is we, we have to look at what is happening at the, at the cross. I mean, obviously any discussion in the end times is built on or is connected to what Jesus has accomplished in his death and resurrection. Uh, and again, there's a whole school of thought on, you know, what, uh, what happens on the cross, what Jesus is doing. Is he, uh, is it just penal substitutionary atonement? Is that the thing that we view the entire uh, the sum total of what's happening on the cross is there an element of uh, Christus Victor where he is being victorious over uh, sin and death? And I think there's uh, an aspect of that that we have to take into this. Hebrews 2, uh, right? We're talking about suffering. Uh, Hebrews 2, talking about Jesus going through suffering, uh, says in verse the end of verse 14 that uh, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who were uh, through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so there is something that happens at the cross in his death uh, where he defeats the, the, the one who has the power of death, Satan. We, we have to root this back in, in the cross. All right. Um, so if Satan is bound currently, let's say he was... Let's say he was bound at, at when Jesus died, or when Jesus rose from the dead, or or somewhere somewhere within those fifty days between Passover and um, Pentecost. Prior to that, if Satan was unbound, such that he could deceive the nations, Lindsay Parisi is asking. She says, "I totally agree with all you are saying. My question is, how were people like Rahab and the Gibeonites able to profess Yahweh?" as Lord. And I think that there are probably many other examples we could point to as well. Ruth comes to yeah. mind. Yeah. Uh, Melchizedek comes to mind. What What are your thoughts on that? That's a great question. In fact, um, I think Rafe, Rafe would know this. Uh, the book of Joshua is one of my favorite books to preach from. Um, I think there's just incredible things that are happening uh, in, in Joshua. Uh, and briefly what I'd answer, Lindsay, if you are trying to connect this particularly to an aspect of the conversation, I may have missed it. So if I'm not answering your question, just let me know. Uh, several times at the beginning of Joshua, uh, events happen where at the end of it, you know, uh, it says that the, the fame, the name of the Lord spreads throughout all the land. Uh, and it has a, uh, an effect of fear uh, that it instills in the land. So when, uh, you know, for example, in chapter uh chapter seven or in chapter six at the end of um, the end of chapter six, the end of Jericho uh, and at the end of chapter seven, the defeat of the city of a uh, I uh, there, there is a fear of the Lord that spreads to the nations. And so I think through the events of what Israel is doing, uh, they are building up a testimony and a witness uh, in part. They're doing the exact thing that uh, the law said they would do as they're being a light to the nations. Now, other parts later on in history, they they fail at that. Ultimately, uh, they they fail to to be the the light that God had called them to be. But that does not mean that at every time uh, they were utterly useless. 
in proclaiming Yahweh to the nations. Rafe? Yeah, uh, I, Dan, you brought up a couple of good, couple of good examples there. Uh, the, the whole point of the Old Covenant with the Jews was that they would be blessed to be a blessing to the nations. Uh, and so there was a plan of God to win a people from the nations, from every tongue, tribe, and nation under the sun to worship at his footstool uh, from the very beginning, from before the Old Covenant. And so, uh, but it's expressly made through Abraham. And then it, we see that playing out through the people of God uh, in Israel as well. Even when you think of when the Israelites came out of Egypt, when the Hebrews came out of Egypt, um, they out of Egypt, we're told a, a, a mixed multitude came with them. And the, the way that's historically been read is that there were Egyptians who looked in on how God had saved the Jewish people as they were in Egypt. And then the Egyptians came out and decided to come into the fold of the Hebrews that were coming out and give their lives over to Yahweh. That's at least how it's historically been believed. And all through the Old Testament, we see it. So what I would say is in the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, the plan was uh, the architecture of the plan was uh, same premise, win people from every nation. And yet there was a difference in degree and in the way that Satan was being bound to the nations. So we see God winning people from the nations all through the Old Testament. We see him bringing them in. We, we got all these examples, Ruth, the Egyptians. You got plenty more Abimelech in the Old Testament, Melchizedek. You've got all these people coming in. Um, and every time it's the same. It happens when they got saved in the Old Testament. It was the same as when they get saved now. God calls them, just like he called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and he calls them into a relationship with him. God has his whole hand on their life. He plucks them out of darkness and then gives them life. There's, there's never been a different way of salvation. It's always been God plucking a life and calling it his own. In the Old Testament, the main plan for missions and evangelism was through the Israelites, through a temple that was located in Israel. Uh, but with the coming of the Holy Spirit, a whole new power has been unleashed and a whole new binding on Satan has, has taken place that is powerful in a very different way. And literally the way that it's powerful is we're on this phone right now, three guys who are part of the nations who are not, I believe, not necessarily ethnically uh, Jewish. Um, and yet we're from the nations and yet God's called us and he's called us into this and there's been a binding of Satan. So it's a difference in degree, but also the way that God's shifted in working into the new covenant, but he's always done it the same way. He always calls people out of darkness and it's his sovereign hand that saves a person. All right, guys, we've got to wrap up in a few minutes and <laughs> I don't want this to be false advertising. So how is coronavirus a sign, an indication in light of everything we've just talked about, about what it means to be in the end times? Mm -hmm. How does that relate to coronavirus? Yeah. Can I make one disclaimer before I jump in? I think you're going to probably have to, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, first of all, if anyone was tuning in hoping that we would uh, convince them of amillennialism or you're of welcome. our, yeah, you're, you're welcome. We we may need to you may need to do another show on exactly how to get there because we've we've kind of jumped around a little bit uh, and and kind of put forth the position we hold. Um, so in one way, it's been like because we. Uh, subscribe to this. Here's what we think. Um, so, yeah, Joel, do you, you want me to just explain why I said we should title it this way? Yeah, man, I'm dying to know. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's something very interesting. I'd, I'd invite anyone who's watching this right now, open up your Bible, look to Mark chapter 13. 
uh, the Olivet Discourse. And Jesus starts going through, he starts talking about some of the things that will happen in, in the future. Uh, and a lot of times this is this is talked about as like the uh, the end times portion of the Gospel of Mark. And I, I think that's that's a you know oversimplification of what's happening here. Uh, and he starts talking about all of these signs that people are looking for. Uh, you know, hey, you, you, you will see things like uh, starting in, um, you know, you'll see, uh, starting verse four, uh, the disciples ask, uh, tell us when will these things be, uh, the sign of these things, when will they be accomplished? And Jesus says to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. Uh, they will lead many astray. And when you hear wars, rumors of wars, uh, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation, the kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. Uh, there, these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And then he goes on to give a few more signs. Uh, and in his pur purview, immediately uh, the disciples are asking about his comments about the temple. Uh, when will the destruction of the temple be? Uh, Jesus, he he does talk about that. He does also expand in some of his comments about the the coming of the son of man or the go, coming going of the son of man especially when you get down uh, to verses 24 through uh, through 27 and so you know that uh, beyond just the specific question of the temple he's he's addressing something bigger um, the reason I say coronavirus is a sign of the end times is because the the signs the warning signs that Jesus gives uh, and here and in other places are things that happen in every single generation. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine recently. He, he's based in, uh, um, he, uh, what, what, what country is he in? I'm blanking right now. Johan, if you're watching this, don't take this the wrong way. Uh, he, he's in Europe right now uh, as a missionary. And he said when, when they went into quarantine, um, they had like 30 earthquakes in two days. Right, and you're like, oh, oh my goodness! Like, what, what, what is that stuff? There's, there's all. I mean, every generation would be in this place where there's rumors of war happening, or there are physical wars that are happening. And so, I think uh, coronavirus, this uh, mass pandemic shutdown crisis, uh, is like is supposed to create this kind, of, like it creates this longing of when will the the true end be? And I think it fits within the the general paradigm of these. Uh, abstract things that Jesus talks about that will happen towards the end. Now, we can say it is a sign that the end is near because, Joel, you and I would say uh, that we already are living in the end, the, the, the last days. We have been living in the last days since act, the book of Acts. We've been living in the, in the last days, uh, even if that doesn't fit our concept or what we, uh, or what Jerry Jenkins would say the last days probably are. So, Okay, let me, Dan. We man, we've got to wrap up soon. I wanna, I wanna question you on something that you just said, real quick. And uh, Rafe, I know I really want to hear from you on that as well. But Dan, when you say um, in that in that passage from Mark, it uh, Jesus mentions. Oh, what's the exact quote? Uh, wars and oh, here we go. So chapter thirteen. Starting in verse seven, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, yeah. don't be alarmed. Um, these things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines, 
Um, of course, along with famines, you know, often comes pestilence and things like that. Uh, these are the beginnings of the birth pangs. Now, here's my question. Is Jesus talking about the indications that will take place prior to the destruction of Jerusalem only? Or is he speaking, because in this passage, I think he's, he is talking about both. He, I think he shifts from talking about destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the coming of the Son of Man at the end of time. It, are those earthquakes in various places? It, does Jesus mean to say these are going to continue on until the coming, until my actual coming? Or is he just giving a prophecy about the days leading up to 70 AD and the destruction? Uh, I, I think it's hard to separate fully the, uh, the Olivet Discourse and say these some of these things only apply to the destruction of the temple and some of these things only apply to the future. I don't think it's as cut and dry as we want. Um, my, my point is that, you know, that there's, um, there's an ambiguity in, in the Olivet discourse. There, there really, and, and there's, there's pieces that aren't, that don't fit every paradigm only that the general template that it lays out is something that could be applied to every single age. Now he he does with uh, I think Rafe points out is talked about like with laser focus he is he will talk about the destruction of the Jerusalem Temple which historically matter of fact happened yeah at one time but I, my understanding of the, of the prophetic discourse here is that it's he's talking about that plus the uh, the his, his second coming. Rafe, you agree? Um, I, I, <clears throat> I would briefly just say I, I don't want to hard, 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 hard line disagree with that, but we know at the very least he's he's definitely talking in the Olivet Discourse about the destruction of the temple in AD seventy, uh, and one of the ways we know that is in the Matthew version, Matthew twenty four. Let me pull it up here, Matthew twenty four. It's right towards the end of it. Uh, I think it's verse thirty four. He says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What a fascinating line to end that whole conversation on the Olivet Discourse. Jesus says, within this generation, everything I just said is going to happen, all of it. And then what do you know? Literally, right about 40 years later, which is what's considered a generation, just under 40 years later in AD 70, it all happened. The temple was destroyed. Now, as modern day Christians, we look back on that event as a historic event that took place. And if you read the historic writings of it, it's really crazy to actually read Matthew 24 and say, oh, yes. it happened just like Jesus said it was going to happen. Literally. Especially, they even, you could read Josephus and you could read an account of people yep. looking up and actually seeing chariots in the clouds and, oh, yeah. and even hearing a voice from the temple that said, let us depart hence. It's and an a, amazing study. And what's really, really cool incredible. about it is it, it's almost, when, when you think of what Jesus has done there, this doesn't diminish the Olivet Discourse. It makes it even more incredible. Jesus, 40 years prior, said, within this generation, all this is going to happen while he's looking at one of the most beautiful buildings in, in history. And then it happened exactly as he said it would, 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, but way in our history. And so I think it affirms his, uh, not only... His prophetic voice but it affirms everything jesus said that everything he said would happen will happen 
in terms of the Mark passage, I think there are a couple verses in the Mark version of the Olivet Discourse, which are, are a little harder to pinpoint onto solely the destruction of the temple. Not impossible. I'm sure there's some great voices who have done it. And I'm open to the idea that, uh, you know, plenty of passages of scripture speak to one particular event, but then have a, you know, kind of other uh, anti-types or types or, you know, iterations of it it could be speaking to. I would lean towards a more historic preterist understanding and say the Olivet Discourse, really the primary focus is on the destruction of the temple, which is a very important point of history in Christianity. Yeah. And yeah. Um, oh, go ahead, Dan, go ahead. I, Rafe, I, I would agree with you, but I, I tend to see the Olivet Discourse as a type uh, that is played out on repeat because you, you it's possible to make the argument that j almost everything else he says happens in a sense um, by his ascension. Well, I don't know about that. I, I, I know about that. What wars and rumors of wars, <laughs> false messiahs. Well, I mean, I mean, you, you could, yeah. I mean, you, you could talk about um, the abomination that causes desecration, which is what the Roman army, <laughs> the Roman army. Does he, does he say that? Yeah. Where the Eagle, where the corpse is, the Eagles will gather. Uh, that's the, the standard of the Roman army led under the, under the led by the general Titus. The standard was an Eagle. And uh, the corpse is Jerusalem. Um, uh, it's it it was spiritually dead. They had rejected the Messiah. The where, Roman where do you army. See that? Where do you see that in Mark? Oh, I was uh, no. That's Matthew. Uh, hold on, let's see. We're gonna uh, get into a rabbit trail here. Matthew. Yeah, that's fine. Matthew. Well, someone asked me what it was. All right, you know, what do you want me to do? <laughs> All right. Okay, so Dan, you were you were you were you were continuing to say something. I want to I, I want to say one more point about coronavirus, but I'm fascinated yeah. by what you're about to say. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to put an amillennialist um, twist, uh, another amillennialist twist on the idea that coronavirus is a sign that we are in the end times, because I believe. And Dan, I agree with you. We haven't laid out all the steps for how someone who is currently pre-mail could get to Amel. Um, I've written a paper on that, describing sort of my own thought process, but we haven't mm -hmm. outlined that here. But as an amillennialist, if I believe that Jesus is reigning now, that the millennium is happening now, that Jesus is sovereign, and he has all authority in heaven and on earth, and, and that we are therefore in a period of time in which we sh we ought to be able to see the enemies of Christ being placed under his feet, uh, which is that Psalm 2 or 110? I get those confused. Psalm 110, right? Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Footstool. Okay. Yeah, I believe it's Psalm 110. So if that's describing the millennium as I believe it is, and I believe that's happening now, then we ought to see in, in real time, we ought to see the enemies of Christ being placed under his feet. And without going into great detail, over the last four weeks, it has been incredible to see, just even from a bare spiritual perspective, people are turning to God in prayer. There, is, there are calls for repentance. There are There is a longing to gather together with the church 
people who never talk about wanting to go to church are are longing to gather together uh, uh, in worship. There's there's a greater discussion about the God instituted spheres of authority, the family, the church, and the state. Um, so false ideology is being diminished. Um, even just in my own experiential observation on Twitter, there are you know some some guys who are constantly churning out just I'll just say bad ideas, and it just seems like the tide is kind of turned where people are like, man, this is not the time. We don't want to hear about this. Like there's just a greater attention toward truth and the gospel and true spirituality. Does that mean that everyone is is turning? No, but I'm seeing some some kind of revival happening and uh and i you know rafe you mentioned politics and and uh marxism and things like that i just can't help but think that a lot of the the false ideas globalism and socialism i mean these are being debunked before our eyes by this pandemic uh and and maybe it's just for those who have eyes to see and, and i'm not trying to sound proud when i say that but you know, I'm obviously operating off a Christian worldview here anyway, so I would expect to see these kinds of things. But I just see Jesus sovereignly working mm-hmm. in history, in human civilization right now in front of my eyes. I don't know. Do you guys see that? Oh, yeah. No, I, I 100% agree with you. I wrote a piece uh, not that long ago, answering the, my attempt at answering the question, is, corona, is COVID-19 God's judgment? Um, and I think the... I would affirm with you. I I think that I'm watching people come to faith in Jesus for the very first time. Uh, Every week we've got our staff meetings and we continue to hear more and more stories from across our staff of friends and families coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, More and more people reaching out, trying to get help from the church. I'm watching our church just mobilize into prayer and evangelism. Like, let's go. That's good. And so, and I think that's happening across the world. Churches are figuring out, man, now is the time to care for people, to put in the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount and actually live it out for a watching world. Um, and so, yes, everything you just said, Joel, God is, uh, I, I believe so firmly that God has planned a great harvest through and after this season of COVID-19 of people coming into true saving faith in Jesus. I think this is a, a historic cultural moment for the church uh, to care and to demonstrate the reality of Jesus uh, pretty boldly. And so I'm working towards that. And we all three of us are, and every pastor globally is, we're working and we believe that that's going to happen. Dan, you want to jump in? I agree with you guys. Okay. So Lindsay asked, and and we got to make this the last question. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to start. I'm getting to the point where I'm shirking my other responsibilities. I agree. Uh, (laughs) But this is, this is good. Lindsay says, Joel, don't you think there is a recapitulation of what you're talking about, though? The masses have come to Christ in droves after other hard times as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and actually, Lindsay, you know, it's, let me give you two examples. The first Great Awakening happened a little less than a generation before the American Revolutionary War. The second Great Awakening happened just a little bit less than a generation before the American Civil War. Yep. And... So that doesn't, that's not exactly persevering or a, a revival through a hard time, but it's a revival in preparation for an extremely hard time. So um, I do think you can look at history and see not infallibly, 
I'm I'm not I'm not um, Jeremiah where I can give an authoritative interpretation of historical events. But I do think we can see G the lordship of Jesus Christ being worked out in history. And oftentimes the way he does it is either through or connected to crises and and hard times. I don't think there's any question about that whatsoever. Um, so yes, I do think there's a recapitulation, which I think only further establishes the point that the current crisis that we're in, and I'm talking about the virus, the associated panic that goes with it, and uh, the reaction from different groups. And I won't even go into detail there, but I think you can see Christ in all of it, bringing truth to bear. And I think that I had a counseling professor one time, Lee Eklov, who said, um, uh, scripture in, in, when you apply scripture to the life of a, a suffering person, it brings things to the surface like a like a poultice, which is like a compress you would put on an infection to bring it to the surface. I think you see the same effect when it comes to crises in in human civilization, in human society. A crisis hits and it brings things to the surface that had been under the surface so that God can deal with them in real time. And and that's going to that's gonna lead to repentance and faith on the one hand. And it's going to also lead to, unfortunately, sometimes people are going to dig their heels in. and But but you're going to more clearly see those false ideas for what they are. So, yes. All right. Well said, Joel. Yep. Well, guys, thank you for joining us, Rafe. Thanks for jumping on here uh, unexpectedly. It's pretty cool how that worked out, man. That was good. That was good. Thanks for having me on. There's something very biblical about having three together. Hey. Uh, uh, so... Um, real quick, um, okay, oh, Lindsay, she keeps asking these great questions. So we're in the tribulation, so we're in the tribulation, or we're headed for a revival. Can we really know when God has had enough? Uh, well, Jesus isn't here yet. Yes, we're in the tribulation. Yes, we're <laughs> yes, we're headed for. I think yes, 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 and no. What do you guys think? <laughs> Look, with, with a real quick answer for that, Joel. Uh, for, uh, well, I'm not quite sure if we would say we're in the tribulation. So I'm not, I don't know if that's what we would say, but G James says, consider a pure joy when you experience trials of various kinds, because you know, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness when you, for the Christian who goes through suffering. So for the Christian who goes through COVID-19, this strengthens their faith for the non-Christian who goes through, uh, suffering. Oftentimes what it does is it softens their heart to a place where God uh, then uses that softening to bring them into the kingdom. Historically, that's what's taken place. And so it works on those in the kingdom and those not in the kingdom of God in two different ways, but both can be used for God's glory. And so I think we see that taking place right now. Yeah. And Lindsay, maybe it's helpful to not always think of uh, the tribulation uh, as like a proper noun, um, but a as an experience of trial and suffering, because Mark will talk about tribulation in a different way than John will talk about it uh, in the book of Revelation. Um, and when Mark talks about it, particularly in the Olivet Discourse, uh, I think he's talking about uh, a bit more general sense rather than um, the specific sense that some people attribute to, uh, like the, the premillennial pre-trib rapture. Yeah, I just shared something on the Facebook um, version of this video here. I wrote an article a while ago about how we are currently in the Great Tribulation. 
uh, Rafe, you and I can let, let's let's have that discussion sometime because I I really want to know your thoughts. Um, you don't want to know mine. Well, Rafe's the one who said I'm like I'm like sitting here on the call. Well, I just assume you and I agree on 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 everything. I mean, we. I just, you know, I mean, no. What you guys should talk about is the law. That's what you guys should talk about because <laughs> hey. I think that's why Rafe is leaning towards post millennialism, and you're stuck in amillennialism. You think is your you think, view on the law? You think Rafe wants to be a theonomist? Hey, oh, don't say that. You're gonna get me in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just a joke. Just a joke. All fascinating right. area of study. Fascinating. Area. Fascinating area. Fascinating area. All right. Uh, all right, so the three of us definitely have to do this again sometime. Guys, 10 seconds. How can people follow your stuff? Uh, Dan, tell us really quickly about Theology in the Round. What's that? Yeah, Theology in the Round is a conversation designed to give people a, a uh, behind-the-scenes picture of how pastors are wrestling through difficult conversations. Uh, if you attend Park Community Church, some of, the, some of the topics we address are things that our pastoral team has worked on in the past, and we want to give you the opportunity as a viewer to participate in the conversation uh, and get to exercise the theological muscle because these questions are important, our answers matter, and we want to work through together how we arrive uh, at our conclusions. So you can find those Thursdays, uh, usually Thursdays at 2.05 uh, on my Facebook page, the uh, Park Forest Glen Facebook page, uh, or you can head to our uh, uh, the YouTube channel, Park Forest Glen, and find the Theology in the Round videos. Rafe, how about you, man? How can people get more of your excellent content? Uh, well, I don't know if I have all that much excellent content. Uh, you guys are doing a great job with some of this stuff. I gave uh, you a boost on Twitter yesterday. I don't know if you saw that. I did see that. I thought that was the kindest thing anyone's ever done for me. Thanks, Joel. That's uh, sad. Yeah, it's very sad. I, I love a sad. I bought you lunch one time. Huh? You, you did that? buy me lunch one time. That was very sweet of you, Dan. You buy me lunch. I'm hungry. <laughs> uh I don't know. What's the easiest way to find me? I'm the pastor of Park South Loop. I've got a blog, rafechennery.com. I write a lot a of wonderful stuff blog. A wonderful blog. A wonderful if you're not blog. Subscribing to it, you should you should get Rafe's blog. Rafechennery.com, and then uh, our our church Facebook page. I post a lot of content there, or on our YouTube page, uh, Park South Loop. I post a lot of content there as well. So uh, that's 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 about it. And on All the right. podcast. And what? And on the Think Podcast. And on the Think Podcast. Yeah, Dan, Dan right. stole the job from you, but you stole the name from me. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Oh, man. that's true. I'm just that, kidding. That's true. You deserve that one for the Please. early Dan. Yeah, yeah. That was a jab at me. It's not true. I did not steal anything. That's true. I, I on the other hand, did steal the name Think. That's another conversation for another time. Um, but... Thank you for listening to the Think Podcast. Thank you for watching. If you've hung with us the entire time, you are a saint. That is, if you have repented and trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord, because then we're all saints. So um, if you have not yet done so, we encourage you to stop what you're doing right now. Consider your life. Consider your eternity. Repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ. It is the He is the only way to salvation. He died for sinners like you and me and Rafe and Dan. And if he can save the three of us, believe me, he can save you too. Connect with the Think Podcast by simply going to thethink.institute. 
and connect with us on social media by going to at thinkinst on Twitter, at the Think Institute on Facebook and Instagram. And you know what? This is not goodbye. This is just a little pit stop along the way of your spiritual journey. And we certainly hope that we've given you something to put into practice over the upcoming week until the next episode comes out. And that's all we have for you today. So until next time, I hope it made you think. 